Good morning and welcome everyone to Live Dharma Sunday for October 22nd, 2017. Koyo Kubose here. So very, very glad you join us. Well, I want to share with you some local happenings. Uh, Adrian and I at our place here in Course Code um, hosted a family get-together at our place on last Saturday. It was kind of like a, um, I guess you call it a wedding reception for our son, uh, Tate. Uh, he got married uh, on a beach in Hawaii in July, end of July. Uh, it was a second marriage for both, and so it was just a very small informal ceremony that his best friend uh, from junior high school days performed a wedding on a beach in Hawaii. And so um, for local relatives in Central California, uh, Adrian and I hosted this get-together at our place and uh, so that they could meet the new married couple. And what I want to share is uh, a Dharma lesson about the preparations for this event. Um, in the days preceding it, I had uh, outlined sort of a, a list to be done in the days preceding. And and I, uh, well, you know, vacuuming, uh, getting the refreshments and we, we had the it was a luncheon that was catered and we had to get the uh, tables, tablecloths, chairs. Um, we already had all this in the sanctuary and whatnot, but I had to get the my pickup truck and then I load up those things and drive from the sanctuary back around the property to our back patio area is where we would hold the event and uh, clean up and uh, and then, you know, get ice, the drinks ready, set up the tables, get the tablecloths and all these things. Uh, and I was uh, just by myself, you know, like doing some especially like tables and chairs and, you know, manual labor. But I just take my time and I was kind of smiling and enjoying the preparations. And it reminded me of a very nice, I guess you could call it a a nugget, cold phrase. Uh, I think a lot of couples have personal cold phrases that somehow that, that developed uh, between them that no one else might, you know, it's kind of a shorthand phrase that conveys certain things to to them. And one example of this, I read this somewhere, I can't remember the source, but it was about a couple who was in the Peace Corps and they were leaving their assignment some uh, third world country after a year or so there and, you know, 
And as they were getting ready to leave, one of the native boys came with the farewell gift, and it was this seashell. And this couple said, oh, thank you very much, you know. And they knew that this seashell could be gotten only from the seashore, which was quite a distance away. And so they mentioned that, and the boy said, long walk, part of gift. And, you know, with his eyes sparkling. and, And they always remembered that. And later on, one time they were, they used the word long walk as kind of a reminder of this, of this event with this boy. And uh, they used it to remind themselves of the teaching that preparations for an event is part of the event because as most of you can imagine, if you're preparing your home for a party or something, it could get kind of hectic and stressful. And if it's a, a, a couple that's doing it, a lot of times they might get kind of, uh, uh, you know, irritated because of the stress. And it comes out at each other. Which, well, hey, didn't you do this yet? Or, well, hurry up. Don't forget to do this, you know. And it's kind of ironic, isn't it, that they're getting ready to host this happy event, but it's preceded by all this hard work and and stress. <laughs> and so this couple said that when they found themselves doing this on one occasion, they would say to each other, "Long walk," okay, meaning that well, this preparation is part of the event itself, the happy occasion. It's not separate. Oh. Okay, long walk, part of gift. And I always remember this because that kind of a situation or circumstances is so common in domestic social life and so forth. Okay, and it's reflected in common phrases like um, "getting there is part of the trip" or you know things like this. So I, I always remember that and. Uh, so I was enjoying <laughs> certain kind of enjoying, you know, not labeling the preparations as drudgery or the necessary evils <laughs> and stress to get ready for the happy occasion, uh-huh. you know. And uh, so I, I always remember that, and I wanted to share that. Well, <clears throat> I want to introduce our guest who's going to give us a Dharma glimpse today. Michelle Joyo, she was part of the LM6 group, and she, in, uh, in fact, her uh, husband, Morris Secchio, went through the program several years earlier, and they both are, they live in Florida, and they're both doing good Dharma work there. So, without further ado, let me call on Michelle Joyo. Good morning and thank you. My name is Michelle and I'm an addict. These words are usually the first spoken by somebody at a 12-step meeting rather than the beginning of a Dharma glimpse, but here we are. And if you'd asked me a year ago if I thought of myself as an addict, I probably would have laughed the question off. I don't smoke, 
I might drink once or twice a year, and I can barely handle taking my allergy medication. And yet, I'm an addict. And many of you know that I'm in graduate school studying to get my master's in mental health counseling. As part of the curriculum, I have worked um, at a residential facility with an addictions population, and I have also taken an addictions class. One of the main assignments in that class was to attend 12-step meetings as observers, but also to give something up so we'd know what it was like. It wasn't as easy as that, of course. I could have just, you know, couldn't give up gambling if I didn't gamble. I had to give up something that we actually used or consumed or did on a regular basis. In my case, I gave up sugar. Well, I gave up desserts, but I know that sugar can trigger cravings for more sugar, so I peripherally just gave up sugar. Now, remember how I said I wouldn't have thought of myself as an addict a year ago? Um, a month into that exercise, and I was pretty much willing to murder somebody for a Klondike bar. I was cranky. I felt guilty that I'd let a substance as innocuous as sugar get to me that way. Well, if you want to know whether you're addicted to something, I'd say give it up for a month or three and see how you feel about it. If you don't miss it, you're probably not actually addicted. But if you find that your mood changes and the thing that you're giving up is on your mind all of the time and you find that you'd happily run over your own mother just to get some of that thing, then it's a safe bet you're probably an addict. In our addictions, they run the gambit. For some of us, it's alcohol or other drugs. For some, it's food or soda. And for some of us, it's behavior sex or shopping or gambling, and we find ourselves taking solace in these things, even though they are ultimately doing us harm. And many of us have difficulty even admitting that we have a problem, because it's seen as a weakness, as a character flaw, something wrong with us that we can't function in the world without using something as a crutch. And we're taught that through stigmatizing language that we hear everywhere, we're taught that we should never disclose our addictions because they're shameful. We learn it when we hear people talk about crackheads and junkies and drunks. Media portrayals of people battling addiction turn them into caricatures. They're homeless, stumbling, frazzled old men drinking bottles of unidentified liquid out of brown paper bags while laying in the gutter. And this kind of stigma makes people say, well, I can't be an addict because I don't look like that. An addict doesn't have to fit that image. We're everywhere. We're your friends and your family members and your neighbors and your children's teachers. And many of us either know somebody who has an addiction or we are one. Now, in order to fully walk the Buddhist path, in order to fully be able to grow spiritually, we have to practice renunciation. For us, that doesn't have to mean shaving our heads and wearing robes and giving up all of our worldly possessions, but what it means is that we let go of what we cling to. We let go of the things that our minds want to grasp onto. The mind is just like a person battling an addiction. It wants to grasp to ideas and to thoughts. It craves and it wants more of whatever is available. It believes that more is better. When it inevitably cannot get more, it starts projecting its ideas onto its environment, but that will never bring any real happiness and it will never satisfy craving. Satisfaction can only be gained by renunciation, by the fading away of desire. And every day all around us, we are confronted by distraction. Our society, our world, 
is set up to tempt us with shiny things that promise us happiness and peace and fulfillment. But what do these things actually bring us? Greed, doubt, worry, depression? When we look at addiction, we're looking at a substance or behavior that we need to continue, despite the negative consequences that we experience as a result. What else can we call these worldly distractions than accept addictions? When we seek satisfaction, we're looking to fill a void. We tell ourselves stories that we have to, to believe, to feel better. When we renounce the clinging and attachments, we're able to better recognize the unhappiness and dissatisfaction that they really bring us. And because we cling, we think of renunciation as a bad thing. We think of it as deprivation, but in reality, it's the understanding that you already have everything that you need. It means that we're, we learn to see things as they really are. And renunciation, it wasn't a teaching that first began with the, Buddha, the Buddha's first discourse. We wouldn't have Buddhism without renunciation. The first most important act of renunciation in the history of Buddhism came when the prince Siddhartha Gautama decided to leave his family and the only life he had ever known to find the truth. This was the great renunciation of the Buddha. Now we all have our own safe spaces that we're afraid to leave, and I would challenge you to find out what they are and knock them down. Because if it doesn't challenge you, it'll never change you. So if you're wondering whether you have an addiction, the answer is you probably do. Most of us do, because we're only human. Well, I don't know. I have to check with Adrian, but this Michelle pre-recorded her her talk, and uh, I don't know if that was the actual end of her talk or not. But indeed, this process that she was talking about, um, and how it relates to the teaching of non-attachment. Um, giving up something, you know, not just giving up something, but as she said, uh, could be some kind of behavior, some kind of a lifestyle. I mean, it could be very broad, couldn't it? I mean, if someone not just wants to diet or, or um, you know, change one's lifestyle in terms of maybe uh, living healthier or ecology or something where you have to change your your behavior. Um, and this is a naughty problem uh, filled with all kinds of uh, misleading or uh, different things. Um, consider the teaching of non-attachment. This is um, uh, some of the thoughts that come to my mind are people that say, you mean you can't be, you know, it's a stereotype misconception of saying that all Buddhists or say are monks or even a hermit. They don't want to be attached to anything. (laughs) And that's the spiritual life. Um, as my father 
has said and written, uh, he, he, he learned, or too, that through interaction with people who had problems and so forth and were struggling with this particular teaching, he said, oh, yeah, I never thought about it, but, you know, it gets kind of misinterpreted because non-attachment does not mean detachment. It doesn't mean not to care about anything. Um, now, the way I kind of uh, worked with this teaching is it's not so much um, desires, okay? Or like there, there's a popular saying, it's not money that's <laughs> the evil thing that causes problems. It's the love of money. In other words, if you become victimized by something or some behavior or, you know, uh, self-victimization, okay? Because otherwise, if you are in a non-dualistic way really enjoying something, you know, you're not even aware that you're enjoying it. You're not saying consciously, oh, I'm very aware. I really enjoying enjoy this, doing this, okay? You're one with it. And now when we say one with it means something desirable. That's a good kind of state to be in, you know? You get lost in seeing something in the beauty of nature or seeing or something like this, or you get lost in your art or, you know, uh, it's, it's a misleading thing to say, oh, don't get attached, don't have strong feelings about something, okay? And so by self-victimization, it's sort of like when you, I was reading a definition in a psychology book about maladaptive behavior, and they, they, were, try, they were defining it as um, when there's a problem and you, you uh, try to deal with that problem in non-adaptive ways. So, no, so for example, um, you have a bad day at work, and then you come home and you kick the dog, okay? Scapegoating, okay? Or you yell at your spouse or something, um, uh, or you're, you, you're un, you have an unsatisfactory relationship domestically, and so then you start to to gamble or or you know break furniture or, or, you know, do unhealthy things. And then when someone says, hey, you, you know, you're messing up. Well, I can't help it. They make, you know, these circumstances made me do it. Well, that's just why, of course, anybody would act like this when you got insulted like that or treated like this. Of course I hit the guy. Um, these are maladaptive behaviors. The definition is, that it doesn't really solve the problem and it causes its own problems. Huh? So you have an unsatisfactory domestic relationship, okay? And you don't know, you know, so you lash out, okay? That doesn't really help the relation, you know, restore the relationship, okay? And it causes its own problems. And so this kind of uh, awareness, I think, could be very helpful. Okay, that X is not the problem. 
It's how you deal with X that's the problem. And um, there was a very influential experience that my father had uh, that led to this kind of a, you know, uh, processing of this teaching because he had a very uh, devoted disciple, out-of-state person who came and stayed the summer to study with my father and and uh, he uh, when he went back he lived in out of state and then he would invite my father to to come and give a retreat I think and they invited in fact my both my parents my mother was a, a, a channel you tea the art of tea teacher and so he gave a seminar at the, I think, University of Tennessee or something where uh, he had a, he was co- really connected to and gave a seminar and then had my father talk on Buddhism and, you know, so that they had a you know, close relationship. And this young man, he got married, and quite soon after that, there was a drunk driver that caused an accident and he was severely injured, and his wife was killed. All right, he was he was in the hospital, severely injured, when they were doing the funeral for his wife. And he was, of course, so crushed. And he communicated that, gee, I'm a Buddhist. I'm not supposed to be attached. I love my wife so much. I miss her so much. You know, am I being a bad Buddhist? And his one of his um, maybe it was his one of his siblings, you know, communicated this to my father, and so my father went to visit him, and as my father would say, "Well, then I, I straightened him out." You know, that's a wrong interpretation of the teaching of non-attachment. You're being attached to the teaching of non-attachment. <laughs> you could say it like that, kind of a you know. And after that. Whenever teaching of non-attachment, my father would always do a little bit more explanation so that people won't think that non-attachment means to not care about anything. You know, if you're sad, you cry. You know, if you, you know, uh, so this is why I think that that teaching is kind of trick. Could be kind of tricky. Huh? Um. I remember a a Dharma talk by a a Zen teacher who was lecturing in the United States and one of the audience members during the Q&A said, you know, desires. Do you have any? (laughs) He had the impression that a Zen master would not have any cravings, you know. Uh, and he phrased the question something like, "What well, there's something, things that you really enjoy or something like this. And uh, the teacher's eyes got, got sparkled and he says, I like ice cream. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I remember that. Uh, there was no follow-up on this, but uh, again, if you, if you, you know, is there any victim, victimization here? Is it? being used in a maladaptive way, 
okay, enjoying ice cream, okay? It's okay to enjoy ice cream, you know? Anyway, I think this kind of a, well, I don't know if you call it analyzing or processing, and uh, uh, it's important because sometimes the application of, of, of Dharma teachings get twisted around, huh? but it's important to apply them to real-life situations huh? in order to see you know, how this is working, okay? and uh, to discover where you really know a teaching because it's, you work with it. You know it, okay? and, and you might not realize, uh, you know, to, when you master these teachings, you don't even have to think about it. You, you know, uh, but sometimes you have to do this by trial and error, by experience, okay? Uh, and it's not just something theoretical. Huh? And, uh, and one last story then I'll share is, I think it's related, is there was a martial arts school and uh, one of the senior students, um, he, he was, he and they were walking, and there was a horse um, tied to the rail. And as you walk behind this horse, he had a habit of he didn't like anybody walking behind him, and he would kick out. Okay, and he kicked out as they were walking behind him, and and this senior student. He was a you know the same, he was an advanced student in this martial arts, so he was in good condition and reflexes fast and everything. So he avoided this kick by the horse. And his fellow students said, "Wow, that was tremendous! I, you know that was great." And he says, "Hey, I wonder if our teacher what what how he would do handle this?" Okay, and of course the teacher's getting he was older. And uh, maybe, you know, he would not be able to handle this. So they sort of set up or staged it so that they said, okay. And they got him and they were going to say, let's, we're going to walk over here. And, and they started walking and they were guiding him right behind his horse, right? To, to see how he would handle this. Okay. And as they approached the horse, the teacher just nonchalantly started to make a wider circle around that horse. He didn't walk right behind him. This is a kind of a, or another story that makes the same point is in classic Buddhist literature story uh, about a student who really wanted to train at the monastery and came and and uh, <clears throat> teacher, you know, this is kind of Zen style, so. They don't coddle those students or spoon feed them. But he just treated the student, you know, uh, you know, do some domestic chores. That's your job, okay? And so he was doing the menial chores, and then says, "Gee, you know." Uh, and so, but the, what happened is the master started to sneak up behind him and whack him on the head with a stick coming from behind. And uh, the student didn't know what was going on. Okay. Uh, but after a while, he became used to this in the sense that he would 
first of all, he didn't want to get hit, so he would he would be very conscious of what's going on around him. <laughs> okay, if anybody was around him, uh, and after after you know a long time, he became very used to this. It became part of his daily life, which was actually his practice in this martial arts. And it came to a fruition when, because uh, he would start to be able to avoid getting hit. And the climax of the story, teaching fable, was he was, uh, there was a big party and all these samurai or these 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 highly trained martial artists that were celebrating and they were getting kind of high on sake or whatever. And they're ordering this this young student around. Hey, get more, get more to drink here. Or hey, hey, hurry up. Okay, getting rowdy, and and they would try to, and they would get impatient, and they try to hit him. And he's, you could picture him navigating around this busy old uh, social hall with all these drunk guys, and and uh, and he. And it, he wasn't phased at all. He could sidestep and very subtly and very <laughs> avoid getting hit, okay? Avoid getting grabbed uh, just naturally because he was used to this. He did this every day. And he became a tremendous martial artist, okay? Very natural, huh? Uh and I was reminded of this because of the physical nature of it and then, then that, that horse story and everything and and where you don't I guess that's the epitome of the kind of awareness where it's not a self conscious thing and it becomes natural. You know. And teachers start to teach without even trying they don't that's not their goal or strategy to teach. That's the Eastern style, okay? And it's present in a lot of teachers. Well, there's a saying in education, you know, uh, teaching by example is not is the is the only way to teach, really. Huh? So a lot of these things that whether you're teaching martial arts or tea or flower, it's teaching about life through these arts. Huh? The teacher, you watch the teacher. It's not the student teacher's responsibility to teach. It's the student's responsibility to learn. Okay? So you look, you, you watch. You put yourself into the environment okay? and you become like that. Okay? Um, those were some of my thoughts for today. That's till next time. Keep going and you have a wonderful day. Thank you.